the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation, the current uh, debate in Washington, D.C. over the funding or lack thereof of the border wall. Um, You know, once again in focus, what's the job of the federal government and how they're doing a very good job at it? And how do we delineate that important line between the responsibilities at the federal level and what should uniquely be left up to the states based on the view of the vision of our founding fathers? One of the best experts in such matters from all points, constitutional and historical, is Bob Zadek. He is the host of The Bob Zadek Show, broadcast live and on the network at stations across the United States every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. Locally, it can be heard on 50,000-watt powerhouse, 860 a.m., The Answer. So you want to check that out. And we'll also give Bob's website in a moment where you can find out more about his good work. Also, information about his new book, Power to the States, How Federalism 2.0 Can Make America Governable Again. Bob, as always, a privilege to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be back, Craig. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let me get your take. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but everybody's talking about it these days, and I think some of your historical and constitutional perspective on this might be a little bit refreshing as you watch the stalemate in Washington, D.C., and we're in about uh, uh, less than six hours, about to turn the clock over to uh, 24 days of the government shutdown. Uh, What do you make of all of this, And, and is there some failure here at some levels by the federal government to do what it should be doing? Some failure? Are you kidding? <laughs> there is enormous failure. I mean, <laughs> this is, this is the, the textbook example of failure. And the problem we have in Washington is absolutely a self-inflicted wound inflicted on the country by Congress, by Congress and by the two main political parties, not the only political parties, but the main political parties acting, believe it or not, in concert. They literally, they didn't conspire for the specific unpleasantness we're suffering now. And by the way, I use the word unpleasantness in quotes, because every day that we have even a partial government shutdown, I breathe a little bit easier. Uh, but, uh, so, but other people are suffering, and that's not a good thing. But this is all a self-inflicted wound. Um, And the founders gave us a system of government with pretty robust checks and balances, where the co-equal branches of the executive and the legislative, the president and Congress, uh, are co-equal branches with equal power. Over the last 50 or 75 years, probably since the New Deal, maybe almost 100 years, Congress has been ceding power to the executive for reasons that are very obvious uh, and have created a much more powerful executive than the founders had in mind. And we are seeing now Congress unable to do their constitutional duty and handle the, the budget 
appropriately. So this is a, a damage to the country, if it is a damage, and it is to many people, inflicted upon us by uh, Congress and by the political classes, the professional politicians in Washington. Yeah, the irony it's here not is, an accident. Yeah, the irony here is, of course, you've got one side that says that we won't pass it, and the other side that says, well, if you pass it, I won't sign it, and therefore this major stalemate. We know that there have been debates. Historically, I think this is like uh, government shutdown of one level or another, number 30 uh, of the, the 20th and 21st century. A lot of times it's over um, what should we call more, more, more traditional debates over budget matters. This is a debate over a single budget item, a single budget line, and that is to fund a border wall or not to fund a border wall. What do you take of or make of uh, the president? And I, I'm only quoting here because I know some of my, my conservative listeners will get very upset. The president said in that uh, now infamous meeting in the Oval Office between Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schirmer, and uh, the president just prior to uh, the Christmas holiday that uh, uh, the president would be happy to take on the mantle. He will own the government shutdown. Should there ever be a place where a president says, I'm going to shut down the government if you, Congress, don't give me what I want, financial appropriations? Well, the the president is given the veto power. That was, of course, intentional. That was giving the president a check upon the power of Congress. And Congress is given the power to override a presidential veto by an appropriate vote in the Houses of Congress. But this is not about a wall. It's not about DACA. This is about the 2020 election, and this is about all about who will have a win and who will have a loss. It's the fact that it's the wall. They might very well be debating whether E equals MC squared or what is the square. They might as well be debating gravity because it's not a debate about anything of any substance. Nobody believes that. It's all symbolism. The country is unaffected whether we have a wall or whether we don't have a wall or whether we have a reinforced fence or whether we have anything. The country the entire 300 million of us are unaffected by how this plays out. The only people who are affected are presidential candidates, the leaders of the House and Senate, and the president. And the president is only affected because his ego is involved. So don't spend one second of anybody's time discussing the merits of the wall. It's like discussing gravity. There's nothing to talk about. It's not that kind of an issue. You've talked about this topic of immigration reform and DACA at length in your syndicated program, and, and I don't want to get too far afield into this issue of of immigration. But as, as you look at this in terms of a request to the president, $5 billion, we're going to build a wall along the southern border, that's going to stop the drugs from coming in, that's going to stop illegal immigration. I look at that and say, well, it might have some impact. I think there's no debate about that. But the degree to which it's going to have an impact, I think, is questionable because it it, it, it seems to ignore another number of important factors, including the issue that 
all right. You deal with the 3,000 miles to the south of us. What about the collective 6,000 miles east and west where uh, drugs and individuals can come in uh, along either either ocean, for that matter? And as we've seen demonstrated repeatedly, even during the president's most recent visit to uh, the border in Texas, uh, walls can be gone under as well, not least of which a lot of the people that are in this country are, Ill- are here illegally because they came in legally and overstayed a visa. So it, it, it does a lot of this come down to looking at very simplistic solutions for extremely complex questions? Well, it's not even, you say, a simplistic solution. You have to first agree there's a problem. Solution is, the, is what we look for if there is a problem. Everybody, there's all this talk about this hyphenated word, hyphenated two words, illegal immigration. Whenever anybody says, and everybody is opposed to illegal immigration, of course you're opposed to that. But when I ask people, are you opposed to the illegal part or the immigration part? And here's what I mean, Craig. Let us imagine that Congress passed a law that said, and I'm going to be somewhat simplistic, Anybody who wants to come into this country can. They're allowed. They're welcomed at the border. They get a Starbucks card. They get a work permit and a Social Security number at the border, and they're welcome here, assuming it was legal to come here. Now, you might oppose the law, but let's assume it's legal. Would everybody who opposes illegal immigration now be done because there's no more illegal immigration? There's tons of immigration, Tons of immigration, but it's all legal. Would everybody now drop the issue? Of course not. They would be complaining about, we have too many Hispanics, we have too many Asians, we have too many Central Americans. So it's not about the illegal part, it's about the immigration part. So let's have a discussion about immigration, not about illegal immigration, and we'll see what people care about and what they don't care about. I reject the term illegal immigration because the illegal part just gives cover to those people who just don't like immigrants. In your opinion, is part of this a mirror to history? And I ask that question because my grandparents immigrated to this country during a time when we saw a major peak in immigration, and that was at the turn of the 20th century, uh, when literally uh, hundreds of thousands of millions of immigrants were coming in for predominantly from from Europe at that time, which is where my uh, grandparents and great-grandparents emigrated from. But I'm, 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 I'm curious, were these debates taking place back then with the same level of vitriol, albeit perhaps not to the point of shutting down the government? In the earliest, of course it did, in the earliest days of our founding, there was a large German population, there was an Irish population, and they didn't get along that great. There was great animosity. Um, the first, the first, from until the 1880s, we had open borders. Anybody who wants to come here was welcome because they were needed. Started in the 1880s, we had the first racial immigration statute, the Asian, the Chinese Exclusion Act. It excluded people because they were Chinese. Because we didn't like the Chinese. They looked weird. They talked weird. They, they looked different from us. And there just was animosity, even though they contributed to building the railroads and they contributed to the economic growth of the country. Uh, and they were law-abiding, but they smoked. 
uh, some of them smoked opium. They had, quote, opium dens, a different culture. So we hated Chinese for a while. And then in various stages in our immigration waves, we started excluding people based upon racial characteristics. It's all ugly and painful, even for me to talk about. Uh, and immigration has such an ugly racial component. We don't want them. The them always changes, but there always is a them. And we don't want them simply because it's them. And that's the part that makes me painfully uncomfortable and kind of embarrassed to be an American because I don't feel good about that. It's just not the way a moral society behaves. You perhaps, and then we'll move on to another topic, but I think perhaps, Bob, you have um, really keyed in on an important aspect of this debate that heretofore and largely is being ignored, and that is we're talking over each other, we're talking around each other. Uh, We have yet to define, as you pointed out in your opening remarks, yet to define how we perceive the problem here, because some see it is we put up a wall, we stop people from coming in. Others say, well, wait a minute, though, we need to give consideration to those that are here already in the country, quote unquote, illegally. What do we do with them? And so it seems as if the biggest challenge we have here is that we as Americans have never come to terms with what we define the problem to be. That's exactly right, Greg. You hit the nail on the head. And, and therefore, when we look back historically to the last attempt at so-called immigration reform in this country in the 1980s, and we say, my goodness, Ronald Reagan is long dead, and it's been 30 years ago, and, and we've, not, we've not addressed this thing actually since then, and that's largely because we don't know what we're talking about. Is that fair? Of course it's fair. And also, I did a show a couple of weeks ago on how society has these, these strong, strongly held debates, immigration being one of them, and it's never fact-based. People say they take our jobs. There's no evidence of that. They consume in welfare more than they contribute in taxes. There's no evidence of that. So people are, are justifying their position based upon superstition, not based upon facts. So if you want to have a, a conversation about the facts, about the economic impact and statistics, and weigh that about against the moral fairness of denying somebody the chance to better their life for themselves and their family. That should be the debate. Are we going to deny the privilege we have to somebody else because they happen to be born in Central America and not born in Nebraska? And that and that alone makes them not eligible to improve their life. That's a debate we can have. It's a moral debate as much as an economic debate. But let's have that. Let's not talk about the wall as if that's the end of the conversation. Well, and at the end of the day, the, the, the big issue here, too, and you've touched on this, then we'll leave the topic, um, and that is that historically, going back to even the founding of our country to date, uh, the one thing that continues to be the constant, and that is the ever-changing description of who the undesirables are. And, you know, for, for, for those of us that uh, have European roots... Uh, I'm hypersensitive, perhaps, at certain levels to the plight of people trying to come to America today to better their lives, to provide for their families, um, in part because the stories of what my own great-grandparents and great-grandparents went through uh, remains fresh in my mind because, as a kid, I was taught 
some of the lessons of the history of our own family. And the irony is that if you turn back the clock to the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, we in those days fit the definition of the undesirables. Today, oh, they love us. But a hundred and something years ago, we were very much on the undesirable list. And I think the irony is that many of the people today uh, that don't want to give a bit, a much of an account to uh, the plight of those that coming for whatever reason are coming here leaving very dire circumstances fail to recognize that at one time, Such were some of you. All right, we're going to pause on that point because there's a lot more to talk about. Syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek is with us. He's got a new book out, by the way, called Power to the States, How Federalism 2.0 Can Make America Governable. Again, available on his website at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K, bobzadek.com. His show is as informative as sometimes controversial. Get you thinking. That's what I like about it. Heard every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area at 860amtheanswer.com. And, of course, the program is syndicated. So if you've got friends living in other parts of the U.S. that would like to check out the program, you can direct them toward Bob's website for more information about stations near them. BobZadek.com. All right, a timeout. We're going to talk about a bit of the year that was and what we can look forward to or not in 2019 as our conversation with Bob Zadek continues. Right now, though, conversation with Michael Bennett. Michael, what's going on out there traffic-wise? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation, syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show, heard in the Bay Area Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. We're talking a bit about uh, not just what's going on or lack thereof in Washington, D.C. The Founding Fathers, no doubt, shock over where we find ourselves today. And this um, deplorable... Uh, unbelievable at certain levels, blurring of lines between who exactly is supposed to be doing what from the federal level and the state level. And certainly uh, the shutdown in Washington, D.C., demonstrative that at the federal level, they're not doing their job very well. What's your sense, Bob, as you think back over all the topics that you've addressed during the course of 2018 um, in in terms of sort of the, the uh, Uh, the hot hits and the ones that we're a little embarrassed about. What kind of a year was it in terms of um, the balance between the feds and the state level? Well, of course, uh, on that specific issue, the balance between the states and the federal government, it's been quite an interesting year for those of us who favor moving government down to a more local level from the feds to the states, from the states to the cities, from the cities to the counties, because the more local it is, the closer it is, Craig, to you and to I, and the more control we have over our lives. As as the power center is moves farther away, Washington, D.C., we have infinitely less control. And when people feel powerless, they get angry, and it makes for a very grumpy electorate. And one of the great, most interesting um, victories for those of us who favor small government is what has happened with the legalization of marijuana. And when I say legalization, I mean in the broader sense, we're talking about 
uh, the use of medical marijuana in about 32 states, recreational use of marijuana in about 10 states, uh, and more states to follow. And what makes this a fascinating topic is we have every state which legalizes marijuana tells its citizens of that state, we allow you to violate federal law. States have stuck their thumb into the eye of Washington, D.C. And when you think about it, we're kind of used to it, but Craig, when you think about it, it is like the states are saying, Washington, you may declare it illegal. We really don't care all that much. We have determined that to be bad policy, and we're out of here. We are doing it our way, defying Washington to send in the troops, to send in law enforcement. And so far, the states are winning, and Washington is breathlessly trying to keep up. And ultimately, everybody knows that sooner or later, Washington, D.C. will, on a national basis, legalize marijuana in one way or another. Now, that's not to say it's a triumph for those who like drugs. It's not about drugs. It's about the states deciding what's best for their citizens. So when I seem triumphant, which I am, I am not triumphant because I want people to use drugs. I want people to be free to use drugs if they make that choice. I don't want people to use drugs. And more importantly, I want the states to decide. And, Craig, the reason this is so important, the reason we have to celebrate power devolving back to the states where it belongs, is because it gives citizens of this country a powerful vote. What do I mean? If you live in a state and you don't approve of the state's policies, its tax policy, its regulation, its drug policy, you can move. It is called voting with your feet. And that is a very meaningful vote, because when you vote with your feet, you profoundly change the life for yourself and your family. When you vote in a ballot box, you never change anything, because one vote doesn't count. It doesn't affect you. But when you vote with your feet, that vote profoundly affects you. So the more people can vote with their feet from state to state, the more small-D democratic we all become. We should celebrate every time power has moved back to the states because it gives us a vote we didn't otherwise have. And that's the significance of what is happening with the legalization of, of drugs in, in many states. Now, we know current past pre, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said that he would not hesitate uh, using the power of the Fed to enforce drug laws in all 50 states. I don't believe that he ever actually exercised that, but he certainly made publicly known his opinion. Ironically, in the testimony before the Senate today, Attorney General nominee William Barr says, no, uh, I'm, I'm not going to engage in that fight. If the state decides to legalize marijuana, uh, I'm, I'm fine enough to leave well enough alone. We're not going to dedicate federal resources to try to engage that fight. My, my question is, um, and, and, I, and I get your point in terms of empowering the states, 
But then what of the argument people say, well, wait a minute now here, Bob, uh, aren't we going to wind up then with a very confusing patchwork quilt of laws where in Nevada it's legal, but in Oregon it isn't, but in California sometimes it is. And so at the end of the day, as people travel from state to state, don't they wind up being very confused as to what exactly that state's law is concerning an important topic like this? Craig, um, states have different sales taxes. Do you find yourself confused? Are you bewildered when you travel from state to state because you can't remember the sales tax? No, but I'm happy in Oregon where there is none. (laughs) Of course you are. And, Craig, the fact is, let's remember that when you have 50 states, you have what Justice Brandeis, Supreme Court Justice Brandeis, called laboratories of innovation. States try stuff. And some stuff works, and the people like it. And another state will say, hey, those guys got this right, and they're going to adopt it. And we have experimentation going on. Also, and we then see when you have every state trying something different, then if you're in a high-tax state like California, and you don't believe that's the appropriate policy, you move to Texas or you move to Nevada, where there are low taxes, or Idaho, where there are low taxes, and you get to, and states will learn, like California is learning slowly and surely, how many, they are losing 700,000 people a year who, who leave California because they don't like one policy or another. And sooner or later, California will say, we're not sustainable. And they will lower their taxes because the competition is making them do it. Craig, in the business world, we love competition. We love manufacturers competing for our business. I want states to compete for my citizenship. How wonderful would that be? And we become customers of a state. And the state will want us to be their customer. Well, if all the power is in Washington, your only choice is move to Canada. But it's a lot harder to move to Canada than to move to Nevada. I want to be a customer of state government, and I want states to aggressively compete for my business, for my citizenship. How wonderful that would be. Well, not only that, but then states that have had a history of poor choices in the kinds of laws that they pass, not that I'm picking on California, uh, if they suddenly come to the realization that other states are embracing exactly what you're talking about and are, in fact, in a sense, um, uh, battling for or in competition for a a person's quote-unquote citizenship or their residency, might think twice about the deleterious impact of certain legislation that's passed if they realize, hey, wait a minute, you know, if we do this, some people might find this particular law so burdensome that they opt to choose to move to a neighboring state that doesn't have such a burden some law. Of course. And Craig, how many of your listeners may have moved or selected a place to buy or rent a home based upon the quality of the schools? Everybody in our audience knows somebody who has made a living decision based upon school quality or neighborhood quality. That's an example of a government offering the customers, the, the citizens, what they want. There's competition for residences, good schools, good roads, low crime, 
I want governments to be in the competition business with us being the customers. That's a dream environment to live in, and we have never lived in it in recent memory because Washington makes all the important decisions. I just want competition. I want people to really want me to live in their state and to try very hard to persuade me to live there because they will lower their taxes, clean up the crime, fix the roads, and make it so they're offering me a good product, which is a place to live. I want to be competed for. And let me underscore something, because I, I, I want to try to reduce all the email that will otherwise come in tomorrow morning saying, oh, I listened to Craig's show, and he and Bob Zadick are endorsing the use of drugs. No, 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 no. The point that Bob is making here, and, and, and l- let me take it to a broader level that I think more people can perhaps relate to. We've heard it said over the course of the last uh, going on 25 days since the government shut down, some people frustrated because uh, Chuck Schirmer will not act in a certain fashion, or Nancy Pelosi is not acting in a certain fashion. Uh, we, we've heard Mitch McConnell's name indoors. We say, well, you know, he should be forced to have to do X, Y, and Z. And then they get frustrated because they recognize there is nothing that they can do to impact the position that Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer, for example, has because they come from different states where we don't get to vote. So unless you live in Kentucky, you don't get to say who's senator in Kentucky. So there's a sense of having a loss of power at that level. But if the power is concentrated more at the state level, suddenly now this notion of power to the people gets restored in a fashion that becomes not only manageable but very practical so that if you live in a state where you don't like the tax level, not only do you have, as Bob is suggesting, the opportunity to vote with your feet, but you also have the opportunity to say, you know what, I'm going to throw the bums out. Exactly right. And, you know, Craig, you mentioned Schumer and Mitch McConnell. In a, in a system the founders gave us, where the power resided for the most part in the states, and Washington was kind of irrelevant to people's lives, you could look upon a state, you could live in Nevada and look at what's going on in California, in New York, and saying, what a bunch of morons. What they are doing to their citizens, that's crazy. But you know what? I live in Nevada. I don't really care that much, which means I don't get angry if Chuck Schumer is governing in a way that I don't approve of. But where the government that I don't approve of is in Washington, I have no outlet. I feel totally powerless. And, Craig, the dynamic is when people are powerless, they get very, very angry. We all have experienced in our lives when you are taken, when the power is taken from you, you get angry because it's hopeless and people can't cope with hopelessness. So when power is in the states, then we have the power. We can either move or vote them out of office. And we are empowered and therefore we're not angry. And that's what's missing in our country. There's too much anger caused by powerlessness. And that's why everybody is so darn grumpy all the time. Let me have you comment on on, uh, two two quick items, if we might, uh, Bob. I don't want to take too much advantage of your time, but these are important issues, I believe. And it goes right along the lines. Don't worry about it. All right, great. Thank you. It goes right along the lines of overreach by government. I read a story today, and I immediately thought of you. Uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio rolling out a new plan, not law yet, but he's heading in that direction, that would allow city government to seize buildings of landlords 
who, quote-unquote, force tenants out. You know, they're trying to sell the building, want to make more money, get higher tenants, et cetera, higher-paying tenants, uh, that, that essentially allows the government to come in and say, if you don't do it our way, uh, we're going we're gonna to force you. We're going to essentially strip the ownership of this private property out of your hands. I read that story, yeah. and then that, I think, runs part and parcel to something that Elizabeth Warren has been promoting, this notion uh, of, of trying to sort of engage in a greater degree of responsible capitalism. I, I don't know exactly what you want to call it. I've always thought that the stockholders and the board of directors uh, and the people that buy the products should be the ones that decide whether or not a, a corporation is behaving as a good citizen or not. Um, they want to see greater degree of control over all of that concentrated in Washington, D.C., Elizabeth Warren has been promoting this idea. When you hear these kinds of stories, Bob, what's your reaction? Makes me insane. And by the way, the same article that you talk about, about de Blasio, he also said in the very same article, New York City has so much money, the problem is it's in the wrong hands. Do you believe he (laughs) said that? And in the same article, in other words, he will decide he being government, will decide who is entitled to the money. The fact that you may have earned it through your own labors or skill is quite irrelevant. You have too much, and too much is decided by somebody you have never even met, and they've decided you have too much. In other words, you take away private property. You don't own your property, you rent it from the government, in effect, until they decide to take it back. It is so scary. And the fact is, New York State and New York City are enjoying, that's in quotes, huge negative migration as people move to uh, the middle Atlantic states and to Florida and to Texas to escape what's going on in New York State. And by the way, Governor Cuomo said, yeah, we have negative in the migration, but it's not our tax policy. It's the weather, except he fails to mention all the positive migration into New Hampshire, live free or die state. New Hampshire's weather is really crummy, but they have positive migration and the same snow. So what's different? Duh, maybe it's a a no-income tax. Governor Cuomo, maybe that's the variable. Boy, talk, talk about having the blinders on, not least of which blinders to history, because uh, to delineate this in any other fashion, uh, previously folks would say, well, wait a minute, if you're talking about the government coming in and saying who gets to own the property and who doesn't get to own the property, and, and, and shifting of uh, ownership from one to another or money from one to another saying, oh, you don't get it, but somebody else does, because I have deemed a sole uh, arbiter in this debate uh, who was worthy and who wasn't, is... Isn't that sort of the redefinition of communism? (laughs) Of course it is. And I'm reminded of uh, most of the audience is too young to remember this. There was a stock brokerage company called E.F. Hutton. Oh, yes. And their motto is, we make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. Earn it. it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And for our younger listeners, bear that in mind. That was how a old-line stock brokerage company promoted themselves. 
we earn our money. You know, and How the, and, quaint and, that is. And, and interesting that you would mention that in relationship to uh, the stock market, because anybody who invests uh, at a fundamental level knows whether you're you're hiring E.F. Hutton to do it or you're doing it on, on your own through, uh, you know, uh, Ameritrade. Uh, what's it all about? It's about risk and reward. And talk about a, a de-incentivizing entrepreneurs. Uh, how hard do you think entrepreneurs would be willing to work? What level of risk that you think they would be willing to take if they realized full front in, in, in before them, as they work toward creating the next widget, uh, that at any time, some nameless, faceless bureaucrat could come along and say to Steve Jobs, Steve, wonderful, wonderful idea, this, this computer that you've come up with, a great idea, we like this iPhone thing, now we're taking it from you, and we're going to give it to other people for free. Wow point about risk and reward. And when, when private enterprise, when the capitalist system takes a risk, the money they risk is either their own money or money voluntarily given to them by investors in the hope that they would earn a return. So when they make a mistake, I don't suffer unless I chose to take the risk. When Governor Brown and now Governor Newsom builds high-speed rail, and that becomes an $88 billion mistake because the risk was stupid. They lost my money, but I didn't volunteer it. I didn't elect to take that risk. These guys get to play with their super expensive toys and force me to bear the risk of loss. And Whereas in business, I only take a risk if I voluntarily choose to do so. And it's voluntary risk versus compulsive risk that is the difference between a socialist driven economy and private enterprise the money that's lost it lost it's lost by people who voluntarily took the risk that's the difference i don't want losers in government forcing me to take a loss that I didn't voluntarily assume. Well, moreover, the whole notion of wanting to foster a sense of accountability and responsibility amongst our citizens uh, for our actions uh, is part and parcel to this notion of having skin in the game. In other words, um, I will engage in, in perhaps more thoughtful risk, more measured risk, if I know I have something to lose in this. I'm not going to run to uh, Las Vegas on the Hudson that's Wall Street, and just, you know, start blowing cash on crazy ideas. I'm going to take the time. I'm going to be a little bit more uh, metered in my investing because I understand that I have skin in the game, meaning it's my money, it's my neck, it's my risk. And as Bob so aptly points out, oftentimes, particularly in our form of government today, uh, perpetrated either out of Washington or out of Sacramento, for that matter, uh, they are gambling with somebody else's money. If you tell me, go to Las Vegas and I'm giving you $1,000, Jarrell gives me $1,000, uh, I'm not a gambling man, but I might go to Las Vegas and I'm going to roll it all. And you know what? If I lose it all... I'm not one. I might feel embarrassed, but I'm not one iota worried about it because it's not my skin. It's his skin. If, however, that $1,000 came out of my wallet and will impact my family, I'm probably going to think twice about saying, you know, put it all on Black 23 and hope for the best. Always um, some good insights. Bob Zadek, his program every Sunday morning at 8 a.m., 
nationally syndicated, can be heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area at 860amtheanswer.com or, of course, on the air at 860am on your radio. Bob's website, bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K, bobzadek.com. You can find all kinds of resources, of certainly uh, links to all of the podcasts of recent shows, as well as order his latest book, Power to the States, How Federalism 2.0 Can Make America Governable Again. Newly released, Bob Zadek. On the web at bobzadek.com. That's Bob, Z-A-D-E-K, bobzadek.com. Bob, as always, we appreciate the time and the insight. And, uh, oh, boy, I'll get email on this show for sure. Please, again, don't write. We're not, we're not saying go out and get high. Um, although there are some people in Washington, D.C. that act like they have been, simply stating empowering the local states to make local decisions that can be held accountable by local people that will feel the benefit or the the ill effect of these local decisions that can, then can be ro- locally reversed is exactly what the Founding Fathers meant by giving the strength, giving the power to the states. Insights, better understanding, power to the states, how federalism 2.0 can make America governable again. 549, no, 649. Sorry about that. Time flies when you're having fun. See what's going on out there. Final look at traffic tonight. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's fairly common. Folks go out because it's their old alma mater or they're aware of... uh, Maybe a school that's gotten some good rankings somewhere, somehow, that they think uh, they're doing the right thing, or because it has a tuition that begins at, you know, $21,000 per week, that that must be the right place to send their kids. Because, you know, the more we spend for a car, we typically get a better quality car, better quality house. Is that necessarily true, though, when it comes to a better quality education? Well... My guest in this segment of the program might uh, beg to differ with that. In fact, we're going to talk about how to choose the right college. There is a website, by the way, that you need to know, jot down, and uh, bookmark called collegeguide.org. It gives you insights on to some of the best and worst colleges of the U.S., the reasons why, and most importantly, it's not always what you think they ought to be. Now, if you're someone that typically picks up a copy of U.S. News and World Report, a magazine to which I subscribe for many years, and you think that that's the single place to get information, let me dispel that myth right now. John Zimrick joins us on the program. And, John, talk to us a bit about the latest report now, a look at choosing the right college that gives some insights that parents, in fact, uh, might run kind of contrary to what they've otherwise heretofore believed about certain schools. Yes, our emphasis is on showing up what's really going on at these colleges. We're an organization, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, that's existed since 1953. It was founded by William F. Buckley um, immediately after he wrote his famous book, God and Man at Yale, where uh, he was disturbed by just how anti-American and anti-God he found his experience at Yale University, which he would have expected to be a kind of bastion of, of Christianity and patriotism, given that it was one of the founding colleges of the United States. But he was quite surprised at what he found. So the Intercollegiate Studies Institute was founded as a kind of support group for students of religious faith, of patriotic values, uh, committed to market economy and to traditional values. And it connects students and faculty across the country as committed to those things. We use our network of contacts associated with all these schools to tell us what's really going on on the campuses. And we use that to produce our biannual 
1,000-page report on the leading 130 colleges in the country. Some of the information that you're presenting really, as we say, kind of runs contrary to to popular belief. Uh, a lot of the, the the popular rankings, I would suspect, are based on the name, the prestige, the amount of money that they're charging. But that's not always indicative of the quality of instruction, is it? No, not at all. In fact, uh, sometimes it's almost the inverse of that. You'll find that at the most prestigious and expensive schools, they're paying the professors primarily to do research and to come up with elaborate and sometimes esoteric academic studies that only two or three hundred people in the whole world will ever read. Now, that's fine in the natural sciences or in engineering, but in literature, really, do we need the 400th book in the last two years on Shakespeare? Or even worse, do we need books on really esoteric subjects such as, like, lesbian influence on graphic novels? Um, You'll find that the best professors at these schools often spend most of their time on research while teaching is relegated to graduate teaching assistants, you know, people working on their Ph.D. All right. That said, one of the the things that you outline inside of this survey, and again, a lot of the information available on the web at collegeguide.org, is this idea that some of the best-known so-called prestigious schools turn out to be train wrecks. What do you mean by that? By train wreck, we mean a place that has a lot of potential, that has many millions of dollars in resources that is squandering them on political activism or on esoteric subjects or on uh, building elaborate comfortable student lounges so that the students can, can treat the school like like a, a resort um, and, and several schools we identified uh, Wesleyan University in Connecticut which you know might sound like a nice Methodist school but in fact is entirely secular and one of the most anti-christian and and, and I have to say um, licentious colleges I've ever heard of not only are the dormitories co-ed or the, and the bathrooms co-ed, even the dorm rooms are co-ed. Every dorm room can potentially be co-ed, so couples can hook up on the college's dime in the college's dormitory. And the, the, school, uh, the school is a gay lesbian student center that has a lending library of, of really sadistic pornography. It, it's just staggering what goes on at a school named for a man like John Wesley, and that parents are paying $40,000 a year so that their kids can be exposed to this. Why does a lot of this information tend to elude some of the more traditional resources? And I don't want to pick on U.S. News and World Report, but why does some of this backstory about, uh, you know, not just the, the, the rankings in terms of the caliber of education, but the, the intellectual atmosphere, the quality of instruction, student life, the, the, what goes on behind the scenes, why does so much of this tend to sort of elude some of the perhaps better-known ranking systems? Well, because they don't have an overt philosophy of education. They're just looking at the numbers. They're trying to be value neutral. And in that way, they're accepting the kind of relativistic philosophy that underlies so much of education. We have an overt educational philosophy. It is the traditional liberal arts mission that helped create the American college system that uh, John Henry Newman talked about in the idea of a university, um, that the Jesuits used in forming their colleges, that the Protestant reformers used in forming Yale and Harvard and Princeton. We're willing to say, yes, we choose one set of values over another. This set of values seems to us more in consonance with the Western tradition. So we are going to choose schools that do a better job of reflecting that tradition. All right, with all that said, you're ranking everything from the intellectual atmosphere, quality of the instruction. Uh, do, you, do you take into consideration the political bent of the school as well? We do. We, we, we look for schools where there is not a uniform, monolithic, typically liberal or feminist or multicultural atmosphere that would make conservative or Christian students feel unwelcome. Um, it's a really widespread problem that colleges are just not wholesome places 
where you can feel free to express your ideas and, and the values you live by. And, and universities are supposed to be a place of free exchange, but they've increasingly become places of indoctrination. So we highlight schools where they aren't necessarily conservative or Christian, but they are open. They, they have academic freedom. Students can feel free to express their views without fear of being graded down or expelled or prosecuted by the school for, for, for saying what they believe. And that's, a, that's not as universal as you would hope, that kind of academic freedom. Academic freedom tends to cut just one way at most colleges. It cuts to the left. There's also another uh, kind of a monster lurking in the background here in the room that a lot of folks tend to kind of ignore, and that is the notion that uh, quite often we, we fail to count the real cost. We look at sort of, okay, this is what the tuition is going to be. You also take a look at uh, the average expense that students will have in terms of student loans and the ongoing indebtedness too, don't you? I think that, yes, the most important number to look at, because, you know, a lot of schools have high tuition and a lot of financial aid, and they cancel out. The thing to look at is the average student loan debt of a recent graduate. That tells you, that's where the rubber hits the road. The average American student graduates with a debt of $25,000. That's more than most of them will earn upon graduation. That's such a weight to be carrying. That's, such a, that's the kind of thing that slows down people's attempts to form families or to get married. It certainly prevents them from owning homes and, and starting a nest egg. So that's the kind of challenge we'd rather see people not have to face as recent college graduates. Folks want to get more information. Uh, we've mentioned about the website, collegeguide.org. Right, and the book we published, Choosing the Right College, which is available from Amazon.com and at major bookstores. Excellent. Again, Choosing the Right College, an invaluable resource. And again, through Amazon.com, the usual suspects as well. Details, too, on the web at collegeguide.org. And our thanks to John Zamrick for being with us. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.